0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Money and Markets podcast. So this week, we're going to be delving into those BP results that have caused so much debate. But off the back of that, we're also going to be looking at share buybacks after the oil giant announced another round of them. We're also going to be looking at results from UK banks and the risk of recession in the US. Joining me today in the hosting chair is Leith Kalaf.
1: Yeah, hi Laura. Uh, Also on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about a big change uh, that the regulator has made to the way that financial services work in the UK. We've also got some figures on how people are managing their finances in the current cost of living crisis.
0: So let's look at market news of the week first. Lath, we've just had a wave of second quarter earnings from UK banks, and so far they seem to be shrugging off some worries about the impact of cost of living crisis on their business.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think by and large it was a, a positive season for, for the UK banks. Um, we talked a little bit about Lloyds on, on last week's podcast, but since then we've had HSBC, um, Barclays and NatWest, which are the other three big banks, um, uh, reporting, um, and and generally, yeah, a, a kind of you know broadly kind of positive um, positive vibes coming from the the UK banking sector. There were some some common threads between between them all um, across the board. Rising interest rates have actually uh, been good for, for the banks. Um, the, the net interest margin, so that's the kind of margin that that uh, banks make on, in between sort of um, taking deposits and, and lending that money out. That that increased across all four of the banks, so up 0.4% at NatWest, 0.16% at HSBC, 0.13% at Barclays, and 0.27% at Lloyds. And, and those figures sound very, very small, and they are. But when you're applying that kind of very small percentage to like hundreds of billions of pounds of lo- loans and actually when it converts into profit, it can be quite, quite sizable. So, you know, what we're seeing happening there really is interest rates are rising, banks are, are increasing what they're charging borrowers, but they're not increasing deposit rates, at least as as, as fast as, as as borrowing rates are going, going up. And so that that difference, that margin between them, they're getting to keep that as profit. So obviously, that's not really great if you're a saver with those banks, but it is good news if you're a shareholder. So that was one thing that we had in common, kind of rising interest rate margins across those four main banks. We also saw, saw no significant loan impairments. So generally when the economy takes a downturn, banks have to kind of make provisions uh, for the loans that they think are going to go wrong because people can't pay them back. Uh, and we haven't seen any any of that in the second quarter, which was perhaps a little bit surprising. Given as you say, we, we're kind of starting to see the cost of living crisis bite. Um, you know, I think I think we're kind of still keeping a kind of watchful eye on that. Barclays actually went so far to say that um, it's 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 keeping a very close eye on the on the behavior of its consu- its own consumers, so its own customers. You know, particularly in th- sort of activities like relying more on overdrafts and credit cards. Just just in case there are any indications there that actually the you know the, the consumer is really tipping over into a different cycle, but as yet it's not seeing it's not seeing any sign of a big shift in 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 behavior and and the other thing that's probably the third thing that we've seen um, is that all the banks have been increasing shareholder payments particularly dividends um, and share buybacks um, we've seen a lot of money flowing back and through to shareholders. Um, again and that 's because all of these banks are actually they have quite a lot of capital they 're making reasonable profits, and though that money is now is now flowing back um, towards uh, towards shareholders. If you remember during the height of the pandemic, um, the Bank of England who regulates the u k banks actually said you 're not allowed to pay any dividends guys um, uh, and you know I think actually. What that, what that meant is that actually the money that they were making at that time helped to build up their capital buffers. And actually what we're probably seeing is a little bit of obviously kind of profits coming through, but also maybe a bit of a uh, sort of pent up delayed reaction as some of that kind of uh, those capital improvements come through now that they are allowed to pay dividends as well. So I think, you know, overall, looking at the banks, a positive, positive second quarter looking forward. Um, you know, we, we think that there are going to be economic headwinds with the economy slowing, you know, what's going to happen to, to, to UK consumers. But, you know, I guess the banks are probably facing a bit of a headwind in that respect. But they're, they're one of probably the few areas in the market where they're actually going to be beneficiaries of rising interest rates. And we know that they're continuing to rise quite sharply. Um, so that will at least kind of offset some of that that sort of negative uh, economic uh, impact and, and also you know the valuations of banking stocks are not looking particularly demanding. As I say, they're, they're paying quite a lot of money back in terms of dividends and 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 and, and share buybacks. So you know even if the kind of shorter term picture is 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 perhaps a little bit little bit sort of mixed, actually you're still as an investor being paid to wait by those dividend streams. So Laura, I mean that's obviously how the banks are looking in terms of debt and lending. You've also been looking at some figures around how much debt consumers are taking on and and getting us I guess a sense that there's a bit of a gloomy gloomy outlook for the UK economy.
0: Yeah so it's interesting I think um, while you've been looking at the kind of banks and um, their earnings from earlier in the year I think what we're now seeing is that kind of debt level that people are taking on and really start to build up and like you say that will take a bit of time to filter through into bank results. So we've had a few bits of data out. Um, One right at the end of last week was some data from the bank of england which tracks how much people are saving but also how much people are borrowing um and what we saw was in june alone as a nation we borrowed 1.8 billion pounds um now that seems like i mean that seems like a lot of money but to put it in context that's almost double the amount of borrowing that we did as a nation um, per month in pre-pandemic times. So we kind of have to compare all of these figures to pre-pandemic times because the past couple of years have been, had such a big impact on people's spending patterns. Um, it's also double the level of borrowing that we saw in May. So in one month alone, we've seen this massive extra amount of money that's been borrowed Um Or more than half of that has been put onto credit cards, um, and that was actually the largest annual growth in credit card lending in almost 17 years. So I think what we're seeing from some of these kind of massive figures is that people have now reached a point where they're having to put more on debt. Maybe they had savings to rely on until now, or they hadn't felt the kind of full pinch of um, prices rising and the cost of living crunch. But now what we're seeing is more more of that debt being taken on, and also that kind of boom in savings that we saw during the pandemic and had continued for a bit, um, we're now seeing that dwindling. So the amount that um, we saved as a nation in June dropped to its lowest level in more than five years. Um, And so I think what we're seeing is the impact on consumers of these rising prices is really starting to be felt. And then on top of that, we've had some figures out this week um, from the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. And that's just got a lot of a lot of it is projections for the future based on um, current data, um, and it's just talking about the real impact that households are going to feel of the cost of living crunch. Um, So some of the things in there that it's said is kind of this rising inflation and the growing tax burden that we're seeing is going to mean that 5.3 million people in the UK have no savings by 2024. So that equates to one in five of all households. Now, we know that lots of households going into these rising prices um, had minimal savings anyway, but um, but what this organization is saying is that lots of people are just going to have to whip through those savings to pay bills, um, and for 1.2 million people, their energy bills are actually going to be higher than their disposable incomes by next year, and clearly this has a big knock-on effect on the economy. Um, part of its projections is that the RPI measure of inflation, so this is the higher rate of inflation but it's also I mean it's a widely discredited measure but it's still used as the um, benchmark that things are uprated by so for things like um, how much rail fares increase by or student loan interest rates based on RPI um, and the estimate is that that is going to hit 17.7% before the end of this year. And so that has a big impact if that then is used um, for things like rail rail price increases or student loan repayments. Um, and it also thinks that the economy is going to slip into recession. So there's quite a lot of doomy stuff in the report. Um, it thinks that the economy is going to contract for three consecutive quarters. Um, and of course, the kind of official definition of a recession is uh, two consecutive quarters of contraction. Um and it thinks that inflation isn't going to drop down so dramatically next year as some people think, so initially there was this expectation that inflation would rise this year, but then it would um, drop once some of those price rises kind of came through the system um it still thinks that inflation is going to be averaging about seven percent next year, and that's the cpi measure of inflation so the lower measure um so a lot of Things in there that are quite gloomy for the economy and quite gloomy for consumers in terms of um, depleting their savings, taking on more debt. It had some helpful suggestions as well of what the government could do to help those households that are going to be most in need as the energy price cap rises again and and people have to pay those higher energy costs through the winter. Um, One of the suggestions was that. Um, the £400 energy grant that everyone's getting. So this is the £400 that everyone is getting off their energy bills um, this year. It says that that should be extended to £600, but only for low-income households. So at the moment, that £400 grant that the government is handing out is for everyone, regardless of your income. Um, The suggestion is that, that it should be increased, but just for those that are most in need. And also among its suggestions potentially more controversially, if we think back, is um, a £25 a week increase to universal credit, but for a six-month period from October. So to really see people through that winter period. Now, obviously, we saw an uplift to universal credit during the pandemic, which um, the government then uh, took away just before the cost of living crisis um, really started to hit. And so that will be a bit of a controversial suggestion I think because it's become a bit of a political hot potato but it is a way of targeting more help and support at those with the lowest incomes but it's not just in the UK where there's worries about economic growth we're not alone in that so we've had some news out of the US that has put those kind of recession fears firmly on the table state side as well hasn't it Laith?
1: Yeah, it has. Yeah, we've we've had like an interesting debate uh, going on about what what a recession is. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you I guess you you kind of um, outlined there, Laura, the um, classical um, definition of a recession. Uh, is there a which, modern
0: one? Am I stuck in the old
1: days? You are. You are. You, you're a little bit out of touch, I'm afraid. Yeah. So uh, not not for the first <laughs> time, the, but uh, yeah, not the first time. I've heard that. First time but, um, yeah. So 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 normally it's it's two quarters of um, of of negative um uh, GDP growth. So the economy going backwards, uh, two quarters in a row, um, which which is now being called a technical recession because in the US that's exactly what's happened. So. The, uh, the U.S. Um, uh, GDP figure shrank by uh, 0.9% in the second quarter after a fall of 1.6% um, in the first quarter. So, um, you know, that's you know, what, what, what most people call a recession in the U.S., it's not a recession, though, because it's not called a recession um, until this sort of um, uh, um, think tank sort of quango, the, the National Bureau of Economic Research, declares that it is a, it is a recession. And as well as GDP growth, they also take into account other factors such as the workforce. And, you know, they probably have a lot of committee meetings to decide whether it's a recession. And, you know, there's an, old, there's an old joke that, you know, if you ask five economists the same question, you'll get six different answers. So it's probably <laughs> going to take a while for them to come up with whether it's a recession. But, what you know, whatever you call it, um, you know, the, the U.S. economy um, ha, has, has shrunk two quarters in a row. And that... You know, although the level of the the decrease is nothing compared to, for instance, what we saw in the the pandemic, the fact that it's contracted twice in a row um, is quite significant because if you look back through right back to 2000, this is only the third time that that has happened, the other times being during the pandemic and also during the financial crisis. Um, so it is a very, it is a very rare event that that this happens, and obviously not an entirely um, positive signal, particularly um, you know uh, when um, you know in, in the last quarter of of, uh, the, of, of last year um, uh, the u s economy grew at a, a, an annualized rate of six point nine percent so probably important to also say that the way that the u s um, calculates its GDP is a, a bit different to the way that we do it. So we look at the quarter and we say, how much has it grown in the quarter? They look at the quarter and say, how much has it grown? And then turn that into an annualized rate, which is why it always sounds so much more. But, um, you know, the, the, I guess the key message coming from the, mar- uh, the economy is that, you know, thing, things are slowing down. And that's particularly worrying because you know that's really before interest rate rises have have started to come through, and probably you know a lot of the inflationary pressures have really started to hit consumers. So, so yeah, not not great news from the economy. I mean, the interesting thing is that at the same time that that data has come out is you know in July the U.S. stock market had an absolutely cracking time. Um, so it was up 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 ten percent over over the course of July. Um, so, you know, definitely pairing some of its its losses for the year. And I guess, you know, why is that where well, you could say, you know, the, the US kind of economic figures are kind of, you know, in the past and the market is a forward looking thing. But again, if you look forward, you're not seeing a huge amount to, to get too excited about there, I don't think. Um, you know, kind of we've still got inflation, we've still got economic worries. So, um, you know, I think really the kind of the, the, the pickup in the market, I think, com- comes down to kind of three main things. One was, you know, it, it's been hit very badly this year. So things don't go up or down in a straight line forever. You know, there's always a bit of um, a big bit of give and take. So I think there's probably a bit of that. Um, we've also had in the US a pretty decent results season. So, um, you know, looking at, you know, the companies that have delivered delivered results, a lot of them have come in above Expectations now; those expectations might have been lowered, but they've come in above expectations. So, you know, S and P Global they they did a kind of market wide research of of, of um, the S and P 500, and you know those members that um, were reporting 209 beat their earnings forecasts and 60 missed their earning forecast. So generally a pretty positive earnings season. I guess the market was probably looking for just something positive to hang on to. And actually, I think second quarter earnings in the US, the company, you know, the kind of corporate sector actually actually delivered. Again, you know, that's, again, that's something that um, is, is backwards looking. That is looking at how that these companies performed over the second quarter of the year. Again, you know, you're thinking perhaps, you know inflationary pressures are start are only just starting to build consumers are maybe running down that kind of treasure chest that many of them built up during the pandemic when they couldn't go out and spend money on kind of pints and and haircuts and whatever so perhaps that's that's still not really giving us a, a, a clear picture of of where we're heading so i think but that but that earning season is another factor playing in and also um i think markets were quite happy by what the us central bank Not necessarily did, but what it said. So the US central bank hiked interest rates again um, by 0.75%. But it also kind of hinted that it was getting towards the end of this kind of very aggressive interest rate hiking bit of the cycle. Um, and that actually, yes, we might need more interest rate rises for later in the year, but it wouldn't be at this kind of breakneck speed. And I think, again, the market looking for something positive took that to heart. And so it's actually been a really, really good time for, for the for the US um, uh, equity markets um, over the course of, of July. Um, you know, it remains to be seen, obviously, how we do for the rest of the year. There are obviously clearly, um, um, you know, a number of worries that are still kind of um Uh, circling around you know not least the kind of geopolitics what's going on toward taiwan you know what's going on in in russia and ukraine and with the prospect of you know winter also creeping up on us in the in the northern hemisphere when actually a lot more of us are going to be paying more in terms of those energy bills because we're having to we're having to heat our homes so yeah very much watch this space
0: Next up, let's speak to Russ Mould about those BP results that dominated headlines this week. So the oil giant reported its highest profit in 14 years, clocking up 6.9 billion of profit in the second quarter. So at a time when rising energy bills are a big weight on people's finances, it doesn't look great. But Russ, first, can you just tell us what led to those record profits?
2: Yeah, and the major thing is rising oil and gas prices. Over the last 12 months, oil prices are up 40%. The natural gas price is up 80%. And that's just using one benchmark. The European gas price is up an awful lot more than that. So BP has has naturally capitalised from the higher price of crude products. It's also benefited from higher prices for refined products. We don't put crude oil in our car. We put refined petrol or diesel in it. And and BP is very active there as well. And and demand has remained very strong. So it's, it's just naturally benefited from rising commodity prices. It has also helped itself. Remember when oil went negative two years ago and it collapsed into loss, BP sold assets, cut costs, cut investment and cut debt, so that it is leaner and meaner than it was then and and therefore more able to benefit from any upturn in in oil and gas prices.
0: And without kind of delving into the political quagmire that is kind of windfall taxes and Mm. um, taking some of these profits off BP, that is partly... BP's argument against doing that, isn't it? That, that when times were lean and it was making losses, there was no no bailout for them.
2: No, it, it, it didn't, unlike the bank's come cap in hand. It, it, it tried to sort itself out as best it could, um, and it's done a pretty reasonable job. And it's actually still paying out compensation to Americans for polluting the Gulf of Mexico 12 years ago, and it's still able to take that financial burden um, in its stride. I, I guess the question is, to a degree stepping back, is why the oil and gas price so firm? Because BP is a commodity producer, it's not a price giver. It's a price taker. A commodity is a commodity is a commodity. And it's really um, competition. You know, and, and the price of that commodity is defined by competition and demand for it. So why are oil and gas so strong? Well, we, we have the war in the Ukraine, which means there are sanctions on Russian supply, which is a sixth of the world's gas and a tenth of its oil. We have ongoing sanctions on Iran and Venezuela. Um, we have the, the Russians fighting back by limiting supply to Europe through the Nord Stream pipeline. And then we also have the situation whereby for, for quite a while, before COP26 and definitely after it, you know, oil companies have been under pressure not to drill holes in the Earth's crust, not to produce as much hydrocarbon so we can transition to a cleaner, nicer world. And they have generally taken that to heart. If you look at their capital investment plans, banks have refused to finance them. Insurers have, have refused to insure them. For managers have dumped their shares and said, we don't want to touch this filthy stuff. Uh, and the public and politicians have been clamoring for progress to a, to a renewable world. So oil companies have to taken that message on and supply isn't growing, but energy demand still is. And that in itself is a, is a recipe for higher oil and gas prices, let alone all of the then geopolitical and, and economic complications we've seen on top of that.
0: And so then aside from those kind of big profits, BP also announced um, increased dividends and also share buybacks, which is a bit of a trend that we've seen among, certainly among the FTSE 100 firms this year. So can you give us a bit of an update now we're um, more than halfway through the year uh, on what those kind of dividend and buyback Landscape looks like.
2: Yeah, I mean, again, without going into the rights and wrongs of whether it's an appropriate thing to do, because there'll be a lot of households in the UK grinding their teeth looking at BP returning over $4 billion a quarter to its shareholders. Um, UK dividends are set to just about get back to their prior record highs of £85 billion a year. That's looking at the FTSE 100 only and ordinary dividends only. Uh, And buybacks, well, given the plans that we've heard from, from 34, 33, 34 FTSE 100 firms this year, we're going to see a record figure for buybacks from FTSE 100 firms right now at about forty-six to forty-seven billion pounds. So if you add eighty-five billion in dividends, a couple of billion in special dividends, forty odd billion in in, in buybacks, that's sort of a cash yield on the FTSE 100 of six to seven percent, given its current true trillion-pound market cap. So that's not keeping in pace with inflation anymore, unfortunately, um, but it's certainly helping from an investment point of view, at least.
0: Um. I presume kind of oil and gas is dominating part of that in terms of um, the lion's share of of payouts
2: and buybacks. Yeah, very good. The the big three are oil and gas, which is Shell and BP, financials, which is predominantly the banks, and we've seen HSBC, Barclays and a few others return cash, and consumer staples have been active there as well. That's particularly Diageo. So clearly one question that you need to ask yourself as an investor is, well, are these trends sustainable? Um, Buybacks tend to be quite pro-cyclical. Um, obviously, companies when they're making higher profits, they've got more cash with which to play, and they're likely to be more liberal with it. Buybacks are also quite sort of cyclical, according to the debt cycle. So, the cheaper debt gets, the more tempted they are to buy back their stock because they're not earning any interest on the cash. And you can play mathematical uh, games which make it look earnings enhancing. So, we've had good economic growth. We've had very low interest rates, and that's stoked a buyback boom. Looking to twenty twenty three cost of debt is going up through interest rates and there, are, there is a, a strong argument out there that there's a recession coming our way so maybe the environment won't be quite so propitious in 2023 for buybacks. Certainly it would require something pretty remarkable to happen right now at least for, for buybacks to set another monster second record in a row but if oil prices keep on going up and up and up who knows what's possible at least from that sector anyway.
0: And I think that's an interesting way of looking at it, because obviously markets have been quite volatile recently. And so investors generally um, will be very focused on kind of share price rises and falls. But you're saying that if you look in the round, it's actually more attractive
2: than it might first look. But the FTSE 100. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting because it's such an odd index. I mean, it you know, as as we found out to our cost, it's got very little by way of sort of technology or growth exposure. And by contrast, it has a lot of exposure to what you could perhaps rudely call old economy stuff like oil and gas, like mining, banks, insurers. So it's, it's, in some ways, it's a bit of a plodder's index on one hand, with its heavy exposure to, to, to pharmaceuticals, consumer staples and utilities. And then a quite cyclical index, given its exposure to commodities and financials on the other. So if you get a decent manageable inflationary recovery, the UK is actually a pretty good place to be if you get a very heavy global downturn, it's probably not so clever. And it wasn't ideally suited to the sort of low growth, low rate sludge that we've been used to for the last 10 years, which favoured growth stocks. But an inflationary recovery up to a point probably isn't a bad place, it means the UK probably isn't a bad place to be. And and looking at the major global indices so far to the year to date in 2022, the UK ranks second only behind India, although that's with a capital return of Broadly zero, which might not bring too many smiles to people's faces, but at least then you have the yield and the buybacks on top, potentially.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much for that.
1: Now, last week, the Financial Conduct Authority, or the FCA for short, announced a major overhaul of the way it is regulating retail financial services. It's confirmed it's introducing something called the Consumer Duty now Tom Selby is with us he's our pensions and regulation expert and he's going to explain it all to us in really simple terms Tom so let's let's just start with what is the consumer duty and why does the
3: fca think that it's needed Thanks, Laith. Um, yeah, a good challenge there. Explain explaining regulation in a simple way. But I think we can I think we can rise to it. So the, the consumer duty is intended as a significant shift in the way the FCA regulates retail financial services. So that's everything from things like self-invested personal pensions, ISAs, and 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 the platforms that house them, but also things like funeral plans and the retail banking sector as well. So the the consumer duties intended to set a new standard for the UK financial services sector, and it will require firms to act to deliver good outcomes for retail customers. Now, that's explicitly intended as a step up in standards compared to the current requirements so currently firms are required to treat customers fairly and are required to communicate in a way that's clear fair and not misleading so in essence the consumer duty will be replacing those requirements with the requirement to achieve Good outcomes for customers. Now, in order to do that, firms will be required to act in good faith towards retail customers, avoid foreseeable harm towards retail customers, and that's key, that foreseeable, so not all harm, but avoid any foreseeable harm to customers, and enable and support retail customers to pursue their financial objectives. Now, if this all sounds like exactly what firms should be doing, that's because, frankly, in most cases, it is what firms should be doing. It's also all quite broad as well, but there are four specific areas that the, the FCA wants to see good outcomes in. So that's products and services. It wants to see people getting uh, a good price and value for money in the products that they receive. It wants to see improvements in consumer understanding, and it wants to see customers' supported as well. So that's kind of broadly the structure of the consumer duty. And I guess in terms of why this is deemed to be necessary. So the FCA says it feels that in certain areas of the financial services industry, customers aren't being served as well as they should. So competition's not working as well as they would like it to. So for example, they have concerns that some firms might be using behavioural biases to make it easy for people to buy a product, but make it harder to cancel. So taking advantage of those behavioural biases, something that they refer to as sludge practices, which I think is quite a quite a nice term and kind of uh, probably probably does uh, reflect some people's experience with certain uh, with certain firms they've had to deal with. Um, there's also some concerns in some product area er- that in, in some product areas might not be explained clearly enough to people or enough efforts have been made to ensure the features of, of products are, are properly understood. So as I said, you could argue, and many have, that firms that aren't doing a lot of this stuff are potentially breaching existing requirements. And there's a challenge here, to, I think, to the, to the FCA in terms of ensuring that these new higher standards are, are properly in force. But the FCA feels that this entirely new duty and this entirely new regulatory principle are needed to to push forward a shift in mindset, I guess, at firms and a shifting in culture within the industry as well.
1: Okay, okay. So, so far, so good, Tom. You're doing, doing a great job on the simplicity front, I think. So, <laughs> can, we, can we maybe get some, some concrete examples of how this is actually going to kind of affect consumers?
3: Yeah, so this is where it gets a little bit trickier. So, the FCA has been um, quite... Careful in making sure it doesn't set out too many specifics in what it does and doesn't want to do. So that's in part because um, this these are these are standards that have to go across all sorts of different markets, all sorts of different industries, different sectors, different sizes of company, and and all the rest of it. So the way that it will be applied in those different sectors and by those different sizes of companies is likely to be different. As, as I mentioned, a lot of the focus is on pushing forward cultural change and that, and that mindset change as well i think i think any impacts that we see are potentially going to be felt over over a long period of time but there, w- there was one specific example that the fca gave at a briefing uh, i attended last week and that was around how long it takes to buy a product versus how long it takes to complain about a product. So a firm that has very slick online process, for example, when they're looking to take out a new product or buy something or engage in a a service, but has very poor processes if you're trying to complain. So it might take five minutes to buy the product, but it takes 30 minutes to get someone to answer the phone. The FCA was clear that that kind of behavior wouldn't be in line with the consumer duty. Um, But the development of what is and isn't in line with the consumer duty will be partly down to the FCA and how it polices this and also it will be partly down to the financial ombudsman service which is an independent body which deals with complaints and, and the rulings that it comes up with as well so that's that's a long way of saying that the, the, the way the consumer duty, duty applies and the kind of benefits that consumers are going to receive aren't necessarily going to be felt immediately it's going to be something that's built iteratively over time.
0: And so, when do companies have to comply with this? When, when might consumers start to see some changes?
3: Yeah, so this this was one of the one of the controversial parts of, of what was announced. So we've got, we've got a split timeline and a slight delay on the original timeline as well. So for for firms selling retail products to new customers, so what's referred to as open book firms. Uh, the new the new consumer duty expectations and rules will come into force in just under a year's time, so July 2023. So that's a delay of three months on the original proposal, so not too far. But perhaps the more controversial part was for firms not selling products to new customers, so they're often referred to as closed book firms, that the new rules won't come into force until July 2024, so in, a near just a a, a near two year delay for those firms in terms of complying with the duty now the reason that the fca gave for that is that some of those closed book firms might need more time to upgrade their antiquated systems they tend to um, invest a little bit less in technology versus uh, more modern platforms that are out there winning customers and so in order to comply with the duty they'll need a bit more time to deal with it i think i think most people feel it's a A pragmatic solution. It's it's, it's slightly unfortunate because a lot of the consumer harm that we see in terms of high charges and bad customer services exists within the closed book sector. But I think there was a realisation that if the FCA attempted to force these new standards on those firms too quickly, they simply wouldn't be able to comply with the standards. So I think all in all, it should over time be a good thing for customers, but it's going to take a little while for the benefits to be felt
0: great that's everything for this week and also to give you a heads up we're taking a summer break now so that we can all have a well-earned rest and we're going to be working on some great interviews for when we come back so we're going to be back in september with lots of new content interviews and information but until then have a great summer before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of aj bow or shares magazine